Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Claire Daverly about her contemporary novel, Talking at Night. Claire has been writing stories ever since she was six years old, and after graduating with a degree in fine art from Oxford, she began a career in publishing, writing about books by day, but penning her own by night. Claire now lives in Scotland with her husband and spaniel. In this episode, we discuss how the characters of her novel lived in her head for years before she found a way to put them on the page. Why she made the contentious decision not to use speech marks. And why this novel was third time lucky in getting an agent. But before we hear that, here's Claire with an excerpt from Talking at Night. Will realises there is something about Rosie Winters the night he meets her at the bonfire. When he tells her that his mother left. They are sitting beside each other, with the blaze lifting into the November darkness, part of a broken circle of six formers, fingerless gloves, beer cans, distant waves beyond the pines. He doesn't know Rosie, really, despite sharing a school and some friends, but tonight they are talking, a little. Small talk at first, insignificant, until his friend Josh, her twin brother, makes a comment about their parents and Rosie laughs, barely audible, above the bonfire. And before he can think what he's doing, he's told her he doesn't know his own mother. It is something he's never said out loud before. Navigated usually with a dip of the head, a passing of the moment. But he finds himself telling her, this girl with her split ends and untamed eyebrows and her pale, slender hands, that his mother walked out years back while he was watching cartoons before school. She looks at him when he says it, the flames held in her eyes. There isn't sympathy or curiosity in her face, no frown or twitching mouth, reactions he might have expected if he'd had time to think about it. Where do you think she is? She asks him after a moment. He pauses, looks at the sky patched through the gaps in the trees. The smoke from the fire curls upwards and there are stars with one larger, whiter than the others. A planet, perhaps, or a moon. I don't know, he says to her. Anywhere. And Rosie Winters repeats the word back at him, like she's really thinking about it. Like she's wondering what anywhere might look like. Hi, 
Hi Claire, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Talking at Night. Hi Chloe, thank you so much for having me on. It's just such a delight to be here. Thanks Claire. Can you start by introducing your novel for us? Tell us what Talking at Night's all about. Yeah, of course. So Talking at Night is my debut novel. It's contemporary fiction that tells the kind of long winding love story between two people, Will and Rosie, who meet one night at a bonfire um, in their final year of school, only to form this instant connection. And that connection deepens as they get to know each other over sort of late night conversations and secret texts and walks by the sea, only for an unexpected tragedy to occur that summer, which in turn shatters any chance they have a romance. But it's that tragedy that not only tears them apart, but draws them back to one another again and again over the next sort of 20 years that the novel spans. So it follows their lives separately and together. And is very much kind of a character study about these two people and their chemistry. Um, so it's a book about love, but also mental health and grief and family dynamics. And I just really love novels that tread both light and dark. And I wanted to write something that sort of did the same. Mm. Where did the novel begin then? What was your starting point? Was there kind of one moment where you sat down and thought, okay, I'm going to write this love story or did it kind of start from somewhere else? Yeah, it was definitely from somewhere else. It wasn't kind of a decisive moment. Um, I can't remember a time when I kind of wasn't writing. Um, I always had a story or, you know, a, a hopeful novel on the go and I was always sort of scrawling things down and ideas and lines of dialogue in like notebooks or on my phone. And I can remember Will and Rosie just percolating the sort of characters or these two voices. But years and years ago, we're probably talking six or seven years ago, and I can't pinpoint the moment they the moment they kind of first came to me. But I knew that I wanted to get to the heart of who they were. So I was just sort of working on other projects and just writing things down about them in the background for a long, long time. And then when it was time to sort of get their story down on paper. Um, I wrote it, I suppose, in about nine months with maybe three months of editing on top of that with my agent. So that sounds really quick, but in the grand scheme of things, I've probably been thinking about this book for about six or seven years. Mm. And was this your first attempt at a novel? Was this the first one you finished? Or um, had you had, you know, have you got some secret novel stashed away somewhere? Yeah, this was third time lucky, um, for sure. Like, and, and that's in terms of when I was sort of taking it seriously, I suppose, mm -hmm. in air quotes. Um, I'd written two full novels before this one, Third Time Lucky, got signed. Um, so, it, like I say, it had been years and years of sort of trying. I'd been writing ever since I was little and as a teenager, but then after I graduated university, I, I was submitting my sort of first novel to agents from them and just getting repeated rejections as, you know, is, is the way and trying new things. And so it was, yeah, it was a long process. It certainly wasn't an overnight sort of hooray moment. It was a slow build, which nothing, you know, worth it, it ever comes easy. So I have a lot of kind of respect for those novels that still in the drawer and not seen the light of day because I probably wouldn't have written Talking at Night without them. Yeah absolutely. Yeah. Do you what do you think then that was what do you think was special about this book then that kind of captured 
um, your agent's attention that made you kind of think, I mean, you were obviously taking it seriously anyway, because you were trying to get an agent at this point. But what was special about this book? What did you think? Do you think it had like a, a magic, a magic ingredient or a kind of special hook that kind of lured agents in? What do you think that it was about this book? Mm, it's such an interesting question. And it's so hard to say, else I feel like if there was sort of an equation or a something that would work, we'd all just go and do it again, yeah. sort of every time. So I think it was just an element of having failed and worked really hard on other projects that weren't quite making it. It was sort of learning the craft in a way. So learning how to write, how not to write. Um, I became a much more ruthless editor. I think my first two books were certainly on the kind of longer side. um, And I was sort of finding my voice as a writer and what it was that I wanted to write about. So sort of third time lucky, I was much stricter with myself in terms of kind of length and description and all of that kind of stuff, which I had to learn just over many years of trying really um and I think as well the the failed books just sort of put me in agents minds so I did the the way I sort of landed my agent which I know we might go on to talk about in more detail later but was very much because she had read a previous novel and really liked it and sort of remembered me and just said please get in touch if and when you write something else um so I think just putting yourself out there even if it even if it doesn't sort of work out the way you want initially it was just trying and trying again um I'm not sure that it was there wasn't sort of an ingredient that suddenly came to mind that talking at night had that the other books didn't I just I think I learned a lot about writing over Mm. the 10 years that I was trying yeah you were a better writer although your agent or your your now agent saying kind of come back to me with a different book is is somehow reassuring and also slightly terrifying because how do you know how do you know what how do you know what your agent's gonna like next you know that's oh. the thing that would go through my mind and, and it's almost that it's so it's so lovely to, it's like when jobs say you know we really love you and we'll keep you in mind and you're like but what do I have to what more do I have to do to impress you and that's yeah. what it's like with, with agents a little bit I think but obviously you you did find that the magic which which Thank is you. a great yeah, thing <laughs> I do remember that conversation because it was the first time an agent had ever phoned me as well so I'd had a lot of just email rejections obviously and she phoned me up and you know she really spent the time telling me what she'd liked about my previous novel but she was you know she was very constructive and she sort of said you can go away and work on this book and try and restructure it or just get in touch with something down the road if you write something new so I spent a long time soul searching about what the right thing to do was and like you say you don't want to end up writing something to please somebody else Mm, mm. I was very conscious that that would immediately take the joy and the sort of the interest for me as a writer out of the process so in the end I was like I think it's time to write this story that's been percolating for a long time and it was just the right time you know it's I can't really tell you why I didn't sit and write talking at night six years back when I had the idea initially it was kind of like I was working on other things at the time and that was sort of more interesting I suppose and I do I am quite sort of I like the the magical thinking about all this stuff that like the the right idea will come at the right time or it will make itself known when it's time to sit and write that's probably my Elizabeth Gilbert fangirling going on right there (laughs) (laughs) 
So let's touch back on the book then. Tell us a little bit more about Rosie and Will. How did these characters, I mean, you said you had them in your head for many years. Yeah. How did they take shape then? How did they go from being that voice in your head to kind of forming on paper? And I, and I, one question I have, which I think is really important, um, and I've said this before on other episodes, that people tend to think that writing love stories is somehow easy, which I think is totally the opposite um how do you create these characters then to make us really want them to fall in love how did you manage to do that how how did you do this trick Claire how did you create these characters that you're you're yearning for them to get together Mm. I mean I wish I had some really like insightful advice and I just I feel like I didn't really think about it as a is like a strategic sort of thing which I know sounds really useless but I think because I'd sat listening to them as it were like their dialogue and the things they might say and do for so long they really just took shape on the page in a way that I felt I sort of had little control over so I knew certain things about them when I started writing um, and I knew that they were both going to be quite damaged individuals so they both had sort of their own baggage in some way I mean who doesn't I guess but I had this sense of kind of their their joint sorrow or difficulties that would link them in some way so immediately I felt like they they understood each other in a way that made it very easy to kind of believe in their connection I suppose on the page and I think on the face of it they're both from loving families in different ways. They have a lot of options open to them. They're supported, they're bright, they're interested in the world. And yet they both kind of carry this level of darkness or melancholy, which manifests in very different ways for the two of them. But it meant when I was writing them, I always sort of knew there was this level of empathy between the two of them. And that's why they fall in love. And that's why it was easy. I say easy, that's why it felt natural um that they were meant for one another they see each other in a way that nobody else in the book does so there's a huge sort of supporting cast of characters I suppose um and they are close to these characters in different ways but it's only Will and Rosie who truly see what's going on for the other Mm. um you know for Rosie she's this sort of smart high achieving good girl And then Will is this very aloof, very detached, very cool kind of motorcyclist who doesn't want to tick boxes in his life. And there's just a lot more to them than that, um, that anybody else sees. So that understanding between them just kind of happened while I was writing. Um, And if the book ever lost its way, which, you know, it does when you're sitting on your own, looking at the screen and wondering if whatever you're doing is even making any sense I kind of always brought it back to the two of them in a room together on the page um because that's when everything sort of slotted into place Mm. yeah do you think do you think then I mean you said it kind of wasn't necessarily kind of conscious that you were building these connections between them do you think Mm. it's almost that over time you I mean you must have absorbed kind of favorite books or tv or film where they have a really strong love story that you've kind of almost absorbed that sense of kind of almost not plot structure but almost like you know the the things that need to be in place to make a good love story do you think it's almost become part of your process just because you've just absorbed it from other things so it it kind of turned into your 
subconscious. I hope that makes sense to you. What yeah, I'm saying. <laughs> no, that's a really fair sort of observation. And like I, I've literally grew up on like those fabulous romantic 80s 90s movies dirty dancing pretty woman all the Nora Ephron stuff you know I inhaled all that when I was a kid and then when I was in my 20s I was much more kind of taken with the grittier sort of real life romances you know like Fleabag or um scenes from a marriage and all that kind of stuff and in my head there was like surely there's somewhere in between in terms of the stories I want to write like it doesn't have to be this sweeping Hollywood you know happy ending love story but at the same time it doesn't have to be this sort of dark gritty really difficult mm. um journey that and I felt like there was something in between so I, I'm sure both those ends of the spectrum like fed into the love story that I ended up writing for sure and I guess it's another, uh, I, I, if you want to call it a trope or or a kind of common theme that we see in love stories, and it was something that struck me while I, was, while I was reading your book, is that when you're writing a love story, you have to keep your characters apart, really, um, to make your story satisfying, because yeah. you want your readers to be, like, shaking the book, like, come on, get together. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so were you conscious of thinking, right, okay, this has got to happen to keep them apart and then this is going to happen so were you thinking of kind of all these obstacles did that help you to kind of come up with a more of a structure to the book because I know it covers a long period of time so they'll have natural kind of events in their life that occur like going to going to university and things but were you thinking because I guess it's tempting for you as a writer to just put them together because you want them to be together right so I I guess that by by page 200 you're thinking I'd really love them to to be together right now but they can't be so how yeah. do you think about kind of structure and stuff yeah I think you're right in that that was probably the most strategic thinking I had to do sort of as a as a storyteller I guess because it's not a story if they find love and all is well in the end 10 pages in um and one of the best lessons I sort of learned you know over the last 10 years with writing is that there has to be conflict there has to be like you say obstacles you have to put things in the way of your characters getting what they want um so I did have to think about the things that would keep them from an obvious happy ending um and keep it at bay like for as I say so I think the novel spans 18 years if we're getting technical so you know nearly two decades but I also wanted it to be realistic so it's not an explosive novel with kind of major mic drop moments. Um, although, like you say, there are some really life-changing sort of big events and forks in the road for them as we go. So it was about keeping that balance, I think, of their lives and their love story moving forward in a way that felt satisfying and made sense, even if it wasn't going down the sort of happy route where they get together and everything's sort of tied in a bow. Um, it was very much about them finding themselves as individuals. It wasn't just a journey where they were trying to be together, which I think really helped with the frustration level of keeping them apart. It's like, okay, they are, they're still not together. And yet there's a reason why, and it, it hopefully made sense as to why. Um, so yeah, it was a balance of frustration and realism and satisfaction, not only for the reader, but like for myself as a writer. Um, and I was thinking constantly actually about how you achieve that and 
it's all about that ebb and flow of pulling them back together like I said earlier putting them in a room together how would I do that in a way that made sense why would they be torn apart again like what would be a big enough deal for that to happen um so it's playing it was kind of playing with these believable hopefully situations that life can throw at you Mm. Uh, just having a bit of fun with it really hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Are you a chronological writer? Do you sit and write every scene in order? Yeah. I do. So I, I definitely, like I was saying, I'm a bit of a, a bit of a kind of scrawler outside of official writing time. So I will have kind of notebooks and things filled with bits and pieces, which can come from anywhere. But when I'm sitting down at my desk, it's very much A to B um, until I obviously get to the editing stage. And I think that came from uh, the advice from my tutor at Faber, who just said, keep going, keep going, keep going, never go back. Did you ever just Skinner? Was your, yes. Yeah. He was very much like, you will finish this by September. I was like, will I? <laughs> <laughs> Love the faith he has. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So obviously the novel starts when both Rosie and Will are teenagers. And I was wondering what appealed to you about writing kind of that messy, complicated, I guess this is the answer to the question really. Um, mm. What appealed to you about that kind of period of adolescence then? I think I'm just like really drawn to how intense those feelings are um, when you're a teenager and, you know, feeling things maybe for the very first time and everything feels heightened and important and really exciting or deeply troubling. And it's it's something we all go through, you know, they're, and, and they're real feelings, too. It's not always just down to hormones or teen drama. It's 
there are things that you we really all feel like in our bones that you can remember for years afterwards um and I'm also sort of really interested in that idea of just getting to know yourself and like finding out who you are and that's a really ongoing process I think even into adulthood but you're just beginning it when you're teenagers and I really wanted to write about that change or that sort of arc in both Will and Rosie's lives because they both know their values in a way they're both quite confident and non-conformists they're not malleable or kind of susceptible to peer pressure in their teenage years which is also quite unique about the two of them but then as they kind of grow older life doesn't quite bring them what they hope for as they move through their 20s and their early 30s and I just found that kind of layered and intriguing and again bringing it back to realism very kind of realistic I think um and frankly, it was just so much fun to sort of go on that journey with them and to go back into that early nostalgia of being a teenager. Um, and it gave a sense of sort of shape to that journey um, and how how long that had to span. I didn't want to be writing beyond the years that I myself had been through, I suppose, mm. um, purely from a kind of authentic point of view and trying to sound like I knew what I was talking about <laughs> so yeah it's a nice creative challenge following them from teenager to early 30s mm. I'm gonna have to ask you about a very controversial issue now um <laughs> well you've done something Claire that might upset readers that mm-hmm. might not bother some readers um but it's a kind of I guess controversial topic mm-hmm. uh you've chosen to use no quotation marks Mm-hmm. Uh, so can you talk us through why I have I'm just going to put it out there now I have absolutely no problem with no quotation marks and I just think I don't get I don't get the problem if there isn't any because it's pretty obvious when it's dialogue but anyway if it, if the writer's done their job well it's obvious it's dialogue, yeah. um, which you have done so you don't need to thank worry you. but 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 why Claire what was your thinking behind it yeah no thank you Chloe for saying that it's actually <laughs> It, the, the speech mark thing is kind of so much more contentious than it's I like ever... Marmite isn't it you know it is, people yeah. are really have it very really strong is. opinions and yeah I don't get it I don't see a problem but anyway that's me it's funny because I've had kind of old childhood friends and things sort of say to me why on earth have you written it without speech marks and people get very kind of agitated yeah. by it um which again is sort of it's just so interesting to hear people's mm-hmm. thoughts because for me it wasn't an active choice. It wasn't something that I sat down and thought I'm going to be, you know, really kind of pretentious and yeah. write without speech marks. It really was just, I've always written that way since I was sort of a teenager. It doesn't seem particularly original or fresh to me. You know, so many modernist authors did it. So many books I love sort of do the same and I could, you know, reel off mm. so many. Um, but I just think the absence of speech marks felt very normal. I appreciate it's not for everyone, but for me, the reason I I think I write that way, or, you know, I certainly did in Talking at Night, was because it allows the scenes and the dialogue to feel much more intimate. The way we kind of think and speak in real life doesn't require pause or punctuation. You know, we're often speaking over each other or missing things, or we don't know who's going to speak, you know, next in conversation. And I really love that link to real life when I'm reading a novel I love kind of immersing myself as a reader in the story and not being kept at a remove which obviously quotation marks does and it sort of reminds you that you are reading a story 
Um, and also I think it just sets an intention about the sort of tone and journey of Will and Rosie's story. The fact that it is going to be messy and painful and complicated. Um, and the way I use sort of language and grammar, I think reflects that as a bit of a signpost um, at the start of the novel. And it's also, in all fairness, probably just my arts background, um, because I've always just liked messing around with words and like playing <laughs> words on the page. So lots of reasons why I did it. But it's, yeah, really fascinating to see people sort of questioning, questioning mm -hmm. my decision. Does it or did it make you think about maybe your next book and think oh I better not upset any more more people and I better stick some quotation marks in because I, I just I'm curious really because I've heard all sorts of complaints from from readers where um you know people have said I don't like present tense I don't like first person I don't like this um and I I'm kind of like you in that I will just write what feels right mm -hmm. but I wonder whether some people may feel a bit like intimidated by people taking umbrage to the 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 kind of the way they've chosen to write but does it does it have any effect on on you do you do you worry about that kind of thing I think I would if I read reviews <laughs> but I stay away from them um just because it's always been the sort of number one piece of writing advice from other writers um so I don't go near it and I I know just sort of anecdotally that people can get worried about that sort of thing but bringing it back to sort of why you write. I think if you tried to please others, you mm. literally couldn't write anything because you're always, it's about taste and you're never going to create something that pleases everyone. So you might as well create something that you believe in and that feels right. So no, I, I just, you know, I, and who's to say a, a novel in the future might feel right with quotation mm. marks. I don't really set myself any rules. There's sort of nothing... That is like this is the way that I write and will always write. I think everything is always changing, and you know, the own our own sort of literary influences are changing, and there's always like with the story, things ebb and flow. But I just I think feedback from readers, whilst you know, wonderful and in so many ways can be really helpful, it can also be very distracting from the writing process, which is why I try not to. I don't seek it out. I don't actively seek it mm -hmm. out just mm -hmm. because you're right. Those things can get in, can't they? And yeah. I find writing is very easily scared off as it is. So <laughs> I try and keep the, the noise as mm -hmm. minimal as I can. Speaking of noise, though, you have had some very favourable comparisons to Sally Rooney. Um, and I was wondering whether you've kind of let that panic you or whether that's been a, just a lovely positive thing to hear. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I know a lot of writers who say they don't like comparisons, like whether that's with regards to their own work or if they're giving kind of reviews for others because they think it's unfair to the authors being compared. And mm. like I really understand that. But personally, this has just felt like completely wonderful. And I'm really honoured to have been compared to you know, a writer of such quality and I, I am such a fan of Sally Rooney's work and I will always read everything she writes so it's only ever really been a joy to me and very flattering but I think as well comparisons just provide context um, yeah. in my mind like nobody can write like anyone else and why would you want to so every single writer brings something new to the table just this just the same way that any musician would any chef 
you know any painter yeah. who's practicing in the same style or era and I just I think comparisons are useful for readers and for editors when there's so many books out there to choose from and they kind of provide a hint about you know what you might be delving into so I try not to feel the pressure or the panic I try and just take those sorts of comparisons very lightly and very gratefully and I don't sort of place much um like weight onto them um I think all books are in conversation with each other everything we read or consume whether that's film or or novels or music or you know cultural cultural um what am I trying to say cultural references anything pop culture there we go um there's room for all of it and I, I feel like a lot of people get hung up in thinking comparisons about who's better or as good as and actually yeah I just think the context is really useful I did an event uh, very recently and someone asked a question and they said I'm really nervous about writing like to an agent and having to compare my yeah. book to someone else's because I feel like I'm either being arrogant or um you know I'm not I'm not that level and I said to her I was like go big you know be mm. be be bold with who you decide to choose as your comparisons because you're not saying I am as brilliant as Sally Rooney you're just saying if you like Sally Rooney you might like my work you know there's a kind of flavor to it and I think yeah, you know, booksellers use it all the time, and and friends that I have that that work in the the uh, bookselling industry, they you know they have customers that come in and go, look, I liked this and I like this. What should I read next? And it's so helpful. And I I mean I I don't ever see it as um, when people worry about kind of having to compare their book to someone else's. I don't ever see it as a as a negative. I always see it as it's like you said, it's so helpful for editors to kind mm. of decide where to place things and how to pitch things and. And obviously, I mean, what a great comparison to have with Sally Rooney, but it certainly doesn't diminish your work or mean that you think you're as great as her or anything like that. So I, I think that comparisons are, are super helpful rather than than being a negative thing. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's it shows the sort of fragility, doesn't it, in the sort of writer's ego. Like you, yeah. you have to it's it's this weird swing between having to believe in yourself and also being filled with doubt and I can totally understand that it's like you people are nervous of looking like they're putting themselves on a pedestal and it's like mm. actually it's just a useful kind of tool that the industry uses like all across the board so trying to remove yourself from the sort of egotism of it I think is really important like you say. So your writing routine has possibly changed a little bit from when you wrote Talking at Night because I know you used to get up every morning and right before work and I wondered what's changed for you now and do you have to kind of be a bit because I'm assuming you have like quite a tight deadline for your next book so do you have to kind of sit there and say right I'm going to write a thousand words today and I'm not going to leave this desk until I have done it what's your kind of um what's your routine and how do you how do you motivate yourself or even bribe yourself to keep going on those days where it's really difficult <laughs> yeah um so so firstly with the kind of routine I, I do still like to write very early in the morning sort of before the day gets in I like the privacy of that before anyone else is awake um but I would say the routine is much more variable now um I'm not sure it can even be called a routine any longer because it's sort of all over the place um 
But writing early is still my preference if I can. Um, I don't sort of sit, um, I don't hit word counts or anything like that. Um, I did that for a while for book book two, um, but I found it became about hitting a number instead of actually sitting and thinking truly about the story or the sentences. So even though I sort of hit the word count day on day, I had to delete pretty much everything that I was producing. So I really just sort of get as much down in the sort of hour or however many hours that I give myself um, early in the morning, whether that's just a couple of lines some days or a couple of paragraphs, can be a couple of pages on a really good day. Um, so if I'm working early, I might write for about an hour and then my husband will get up for work and let the dog out of her crate and she will literally bowl into the room and that's like my signal to stop for a couple of hours. Um, I tried writing nine to five at my desk for a while and I also found that was really sort of pressurizing in a way. I thought that it would be more freeing, but I, I think it just perhaps out of habit, I write best in snatched time. Um, I still like writing on public transport, in cafes. Um, and then as for motivating myself, like you say, was bribing myself to get it done. I think it's like a mixture for me of two opposite ends of the scale. You've got like fear on one end and then love or joy on sort of the other, you know, the love and the joy for writing itself. And then the fear that one day I will wake up and not be able to write anymore and just being terrified of that possibility. Um, so I just write every day, almost like keeping that muscle flexed and keeping that fear at bay. So those are kind of the two, the two main things that keep going. <laughs> and lots of tea, obviously. Yeah, I was going to say nothing, um, you know, like today I'm going to write this. And if I don't, um, I'm going to have to you know, like, go to the gym for two hours or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> so you, you used to work in uh, digital marketing for uh, Penguin Random House. Mm -hmm. And I wondered whether that kind of gave you a an idea more of the kind of I guess the commercial side of books, you know, book the book world and and the industry, and wondered whether it kind of made you or gave you an idea of what makes a book work or what what kind of works for a pitch. Did it help you? Did it give you almost like better expectations of what you were going into, or did you still find it kind of quite a, a unusual experience? Mm. So interestingly, it didn't really help me at all with the sort of hooks and the that sort of side thing because I did work in the sort of social media and email marketing side um I wasn't close to the publishing process at all I didn't work for a publishing house I worked in like the brand team so I was only sort of talking about books that were finished products already out in the world which was great because it meant I got to talk about books all day and then go home and you know try and write a book that I wanted to read so I was sort of living and breathing stories which was just amazing but I knew very little about kind of the acquisition process and the publication, the publication process. I'd never worked with editors or anything like that. Um, and I actually think on reflection, it was really helpful that I hadn't because it allowed me to keep my work life and my writing life very separate. And ignorance is bliss in a way. I think had I have known how many hoops you have to jump through it would have scared me off even more. You know, the self-doubt would have tripled and it was already fairly prevalent. But what I think it did help with working in publishing 
and this maybe sounds a bit cynical and I don't mean it to to sound that way but I went into the publication process with kind of very low expectations um I know I know they're just never any guarantees you know I could see and we see as readers you don't have to work in publishing to see how many books literally are published mm. not only every year but every month and working sort of on the social media team I could see that things would be released and given some love and then it would be a new season and there'd be new campaigns and working with books was such a privilege and like so exciting but it was also a business at the yeah. end of the day it is still a business um so I kind of knew that as a writer it would be very easy to get bogged down in the sales and the chart positions and you know advances and it really is just sort of noise and it can be very dangerous so I think I knew from the off to protect myself as a writer I couldn't put any value on that stuff um all we can do as writers you know is try and write the best book that we can something we are proud of for ourselves almost because then everything else is out of our hands um and that can be very stressful (laughs) But it could also be very freeing. Um, and I, at the moment, I'm trying to trust in the latter. <laughs> you just don't have to think about the rest of the noise. So on that note, really, do you have any advice for anyone who's about to have a book published? So thinking of the 2024 debuts that are going to come out very soon, do you have any advice for them to kind of how to deal with, I guess, the whole industry and the feelings involved not necessarily like you know the initial part of signing the contract but how to deal with that 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 moment in between your your signing the contract and your book coming out yeah I think just just trust it like just trust the process because that's what writing is it isn't always just sitting down at your desk and producing words it's like it's so much more than that it's the fearing and the failing getting back up and trying again, whether that's just sending another cover letter or scrapping an entire novel and writing a new one, which, you know, is not easy, but sometimes it's the right thing to do. Um, And just carrying on because I guess what's the alternative? Is it just not writing? And if that is a happy alternative, then writing probably isn't for you and you'll probably be a lot happier without it. But if you do have to kind of carry on, no matter the rejections and the self-doubt, then just know that like you're doing the right thing and remember the joy of it wherever you can. You know, I think for me, whenever I got in a really dark, tricky period after a lot of rejections or having to begin again with another novel or whatever it was, um, I try and recapture like why I love doing it in the first place, like make space for why you love writing and just believe in that more than all the other stuff and I'm sure it will get you where you want to be. So finally Claire can you give us a little tease a hint about what you're working on next? Yeah so I am writing another novel um it's the same genre I guess so contemporary fiction about relationships and and people I suppose that's my jam (laughs) um so it's a book about three people And they're at that point in their lives, sort of in their 30s, when we're meant to know what we want. Um, You know, everyone's getting married, having kids, settling down. But what if you don't know how you feel about any of those things? Um, And it's about a, it's told through the eyes of a a 30-year-old protagonist who 
is hosting an engagement party with her partner and then her best childhood friend turns up on her doorstep after she's not seen him for 13 years and it's the fallout of of that sort of inciting inciting incident um so it's going it's going slowly but i'm sinking into it and finding my way well it sounds great i love anything with uh, a nice slow burn and a bit of pining <laughs> so i'm sure it'll be right up my street as well Claire thank, you. Claire, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you, Chloe. It's been so much fun. That was Claire Daverly talking about her contemporary novel, Talking at Night, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.